Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest today on the podcast is Brian Mapes. This is a good one, folks. Brian is an exceptionally original and creative atmospheric scientist. He works on problems in tropical meteorology, especially how deep convection, thunderstorms and so on, are related to larger scale motions. In other words, how tropical weather works, given that clouds, with all their turbulence and complexity, are partners in it. This is one of the most fundamental problems in atmosphere and ocean dynamics, and one that's still not solved. Now, I've worked on some of the same problems for most of my career, and Brian and I are about the same generation, so we've known each other pretty well for more than 20 years, and we've become friends over that time. And from that, as well as from many years of reading his papers and talking to him about science, I've long known what a true original Brian is. And as you'll see from this conversation, he's a scientist with the soul of a poet. No one thinks like Brian does. No one writes like he does. No one follows their own unique instincts more than he does. So when I went down to Florida in January 2020 for a conference at the University of Miami, Brian kindly hosted me, and I stayed in the extra cottage behind his house, and we spent some time together. And I brought my recording gear because I knew I shouldn't miss the opportunity to record a conversation with him, and I was right. As with other guests, we talk about Brian's life and his science. In general, of course, the relationship between science and the other messy dimensions of life is what this podcast is about. But Brian is lucid and self-aware about that to a degree that, in my experience, is unique among scientists. Brian has worked on a lot of different topics, different specific weather and climate phenomena, but he says they're all manifestations of the one and only problem that interests him, namely the problem of scale. In particular, how individual clouds, which are relatively small, are related to weather systems that are much larger, and which is controlling which and to what degree. The individual versus the collective. A lot of work on this topic in tropical meteorology assumes that the larger scales dictate what the clouds do. In Brian's early work, though, and some of his not-so-early work, he argued that the clouds had more freedom, more agency than that popular view held, and he expressed that in one early paper in particular that had a strong influence on my own work at the time, in a way that was not just forceful and compelling, but emotional, even angry, in a way that one rarely sees in scientific writing. Here, Brian talks about how that was related to his issues with authority and his father. And as we go through his biography, starting with his childhood in the atmospheric science mecca of Boulder, Colorado, where many of us in this field live and work, but few are born, up to the present, he talks about how his perspective on all that has changed with age and how that evolution has been manifest in his career and his science. It was a remarkable conversation with a remarkable scientist, and I think you'll enjoy it. So here's Brian Mapes and me. Let's go. Why don't we uh, Why don't we start at the beginning? Okay. Um, where are you from, Brian? Um, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, although I was born in Pueblo, Colorado, um, just six months before. Uh, my parents moved to Boulder when I was maybe six months old. Wow. Well, they so they'd met in college. Um, I think they were both uh, education majors. 
And my mother took that to uh, to a career in teaching at schools, and my father took that to a to a PhD in education, which, mm-hmm. as you know, has nothing to do with roomfuls of children. <laughs> with which he was, uh, my mother will say, uh, he was terrible with roomfuls of children. <laughs> uh, so he so he moved to the moved to Colorado to get a job at a university library, and um, and uh, my mother found a job teaching teaching music. And uh, so there they were. And uh, these were refugees from Iowa, just trying to get out of the kind uh-huh. of, um, uh, yeah, the, you know, the farming peasantry of the generation before and the cold weather and everything. So Colorado was sort of the high water mark of, uh, of the Midwest and, uh, you know, a step up and a, and a modernization and getting out from under the, the old ways, I guess. Did they grow up on farms, your folks? Uh, my mother did. And yeah, and just hated plucking chicken. You know, she she vowed as a child she would never pluck a chicken <laughs> when she had any choice in the matter. And she always did love the mod cons. You know, the dishwasher was just like a treasure to her and uh, washing machines and things. She was who the post-war, um, you know, appliance uh, economy was for. And it was it was her joy to, uh, you know, escape the old rut of... Uh, Iowa farm life. My father was from a city, though. He's from Urbandale, uh, Urbandale, Iowa, which is a suburb of uh, Des Moines. And his father was a train man, uh, was a conductor in the um, Pullman cars going from uh, Des Moines to um, Chicago and back. So, so he came from a more urbane environment, and he uh, had, uh, yeah, just uh, from Iowa, but not the farm Iowa quite. So although Boulder is crawling with atmospheric scientists, I don't think I know another one besides you who actually is from there. Yeah, maybe not. Chris Brotherton lived there some, but... Uh, right, uh, right, but, right. Uh, but yeah, me actually coming up through all the schools there and stuff. Yeah, that was my hometown. Did that, I mean, is that how, did that have anything to do with you getting into the field, sort of seeing it there? Or? Well, of course, at some level. I mean, it wasn't uh, it wasn't direct, uh, you know, uh, so our house uh, looked south from the north end of town, kind of, a little bit on a bluff, looking across the town of Boulder with the... Um, the castle of Encar on the hill above it, like a medieval villa, you know, valley with its right. with its uh, fortress on the, right. on the. You know, my bedroom looked out across the town to the uh, right. to the fortress of Encar, and of course they'd take us there on school trips, and we'd sit on the cray computer benches and uh, right. And it was and new back then. I mean, it hadn't well, it hadn't been there very long. Yeah, right. Sixties. Yeah, it was all pretty. Uh, yeah, it's probably all. That's new. about when they made Sleeper during your. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Going up and down the towers on a magnetic tape. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Goofy. Right. So I knew that that field existed. And then, uh, so after, you know, yada, yada, education, college, et cetera, come home from college, living in mom's basement way before it was cool. I uh, left, co- left college, came back to mom's basement, said, what shall I do? And uh, I was all trained up in chemistry, but, uh, but chemistry is a uh, Kind of an icky uh, job from an employment point of view. It's a beautiful uh, uh, thing to learn. It's an amazing uh, detective story of human uh, science. It's you know, chemistry is amazing. But uh, do you want to stand on your feet all day doing it with uh, face shields and white gloves and stuff? Not yeah. exactly. So I was looking for the next thing, and the out the window is the the castle where people seem to have a pretty good life in a science that's clean and it doesn't give you right. cancer and it doesn't. Uh, you know, smell like rotten eggs. Right. And uh, that sounded pretty good to me about then. 
But let's take a step back. So how, how and when did you get interested in science in the first place? Was that from the very beginning or? Uh, well, just, if you're good at it, it draws you in, or at least it did. I feel like the Cold War, um, I've come to see that like uh, the Cold War meant that uh, physics got first grab, uh, you know, first dibs on any, anybody who, uh, you know, could possibly do the math or something. It, I, I, I've, I've thought about this, whether I was making choices or whether just what I was good at was reinforced so much that I was drawn into, um, you know, the physical science intake, which was really, you know, I don't know, part of a, almost part of a Cold War uh, thing I have. But I mean, so it just came out of school. I mean, you had it so in school. So I was school. good at it, yeah. So, I mean, it, it wasn't like some you got it from some family member or something fascinated you when you were a kid or oh, something. Oh, that's true. Yeah, no, we didn't. Yeah, we didn't have any scientist uh, relatives. My father was very much, well, he, you know, he was under the high thing of education and he even experimented on us a little. Uh, wait, wait, wait. How so? Uh, well, <laughs> he, at one point he was really into teaching us speed reading. Okay. And uh, and also uh, memorization games like look, you can memorize eleven things by mapping them onto uh, you know words you know the sort of games uh, you, you know how to work your mind, how to ring your mind for uh, <laughs> you know for to read faster, memorize more and stuff like that. So he was a little bit pushing in that way. Actually, later his um, his PhD dissertation involved uh, electrodes on the head. It was biofeedback, way ahead of its time in a way. The thesis of his dissertation was that a state-dependent learning uh, could be greatly enhanced if you had a lot of theta waves in your brain while learning something. Is that a and real then, thing? And then waves? tried to recall it later in a state high in theta waves. And uh, theta waves are the low-frequency oh, okay. waves in the brain. So you put you know five or six uh, cold electrode dots on your head, and uh, and you, and these gizmos with uh, you know oscilloscope-like. <laughs> Things would uh, measure your alpha and your beta and your delta and your gamma and your theta waves or whatever. And then when you had a lot of theta waves, he thought, which is kind of a relaxed, you know, zen-like state, that your uh, ability to memorize word pairs would go way up. So, he'd, you know, he'd sit us in a chair and t try to, you know, talk us down. Okay, now get into a theta So wait, he's put the electrodes on you. Yeah, I was one of his many <laughs> test subjects. Okay. He had, you know, statistically significant number of people. <laughs> is at what age? Uh... Uh, I don't know, twelve maybe. I'm guessing, okay, you know, right, ten, right. ten or twelve-ish. Well, yeah, yeah. you know, as a kid, really, yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, so he'd, uh, you know, talk you into a high theta state. Oh, this is good close mic work. <laughs> theta waves, theta waves. Okay, here are word pairs on a slide. You know, apple and dog, and uh, twenty of those. You know, and then uh, five minutes later, he'll show you apple. And if you don't say dog, you're wrong. And if you do say dog, you're right. And your father loves you either way, of course, but he loves you a little more <laughs> if you say dog. <laughs> and uh, it is my great shame, I guess. Uh, one way to get into these theta waves would go into a dark room and, and it's quiet and stuff. And what I discovered is that when you push on these electrodes with your fingers, you can kind of make, because the dials on the biofeedback machine are visible to the experimental subject. So I discovered I could uh, create you know, the impression of having a lot of theta waves uh, <laughs> by manipulating the electrodes. And, uh, and uh, I always wondered, you know, later as I came <laughs> to care about science, I always wondered uh, if I had spoiled his experiment or something, if there was a... If I was the only one, if there's one outlier on his graphs. So, but why did you, because you just wanted to be done or something? Or? <laughs> well, no, I just, wait, you know, I knew the, uh, I knew the whole arrangement. I knew what he was trying to show. 
And oh, I knew you were that trying I, to help him show it. I, yeah, well, yeah, because <laughs> he's my father, and uh, and and I'm smart, and I understand what he wants. So at some point, uh, I think after uh, college, I went to the library and uh, got his dissertation off the shelf, and it was all hand typed. Mm -hmm. Of course, even the scatter plots were hand typed and I looked for an outlier and I wondered if there, I just wanted to know. I knew that somewhere in there was the scatter plot in which one of the points uh, was me and, a, and I thought, oh, I must be the only cheater and I must be some great, uh, uh, and he would tell me how exceptional I am all the time, of course. Uh, and uh, so, but I did not see a great outlier. In fact, he may have, you know, he may have uh, not really used me. He may have thrown me out as an outlier. Who knows? And you have, tell me again, your, the brothers and sisters, you have. Yeah, there were four of us. I got an older brother and sister about mm -hmm. four or five years ahead, right. four and five years ahead. Right. And a younger brother about five years behind me. What are they doing nowadays? Uh, oh, various things. My older brother um, works, works at the city of Fort Collins. He's a city planner. Mm. He was always into plants and uh, kind of landscape architecture type stuff. My sister is, um, in a saintly manner, uh, live-in, 100%... Um, letting my mother live in the house we all grew up in mm -hmm. uh, mm. into her dementia years mm. thanks to absolutely you know nurse trained mm. level of medical quality and also family member mm. level of love yeah. and patience and yeah. she is just uh yeah anyway could, i can hardly uh not weep at thinking of my my sister spending her yeah. uh this stage of her life just totally tending my mother uh all the time yeah. Which is what happens to the eldest female in families a lot, I suppose. But mm. uh, there you go. And my younger brother's uh, also a, a smarty pants guy. He does a web design and kind of a yeah, he's a computer uh, fellow for a living. Although he was uh, he wanted to be a um, he was a film major. Moved to L.A. Uh, thought he could uh, possibly break into film editing. But, you know, how many stories have involved moving to L.A. to see if you can break right. into the movie business and uh, right, didn't yeah. quite happen. Yeah. All right. So bef but before we get to the science, I'm kind of curious, like, what was it like growing up in Boulder in the 70s, I guess? Yeah. Well, I can't quite imagine it. I mean, it must have not been like it is now. Yeah. Yeah. Boulder was not the same kind <laughs> of town it is now. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the way I... My nutshell is uh, I, it was sort of like Wyoming South in those days. Uh -huh. And now everybody thinks of it as California East. But yeah. it was totally Wyoming <laughs> South. It is, uh, you know, it's a little scruffy. The wind howls in the winter and, you know, yeah. just trash cans tumbling <laughs> down the streets. Yeah, but, I, but of course it has the beautiful sunshiny winters, certainly compared to Iowa. And uh, yeah. and it has its glories, of course. And, the mountains, uh, yeah. And, uh, and you know... Aside from just being NCAR, it's a town where all the people value education. It's a literate, right? You know, it was a it's college a university town, town yeah. yeah, with these institutions of science on top of as icing on that cake, right? But it's totally a place where uh, the schools are great, of course, and right, right. stuff like that. Okay, so then you said chemistry. Wait, not not at CU. Where where'd you go? Oh, uh, I went off to Caltech from uh, oh, right. from, uh, from right. Boulder High School. Yeah, it was too cold for me, right? So yeah, I, you know, I love. I hated the howling wind. I hate. Uh, I have these giant wide feet, so I always hate wearing shoes. I've you uh -huh. know just for years, and I wore, tried the special shoes and the orthopedic shoes, and we went to foot doctors and yada 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 yada. And uh, so I moved to California and wore sandals all winter as a 
Right. As a floppy doppy uh, Caltech undergrad and just snarfing. That's where you, that's where you're committed. That's where you're snarfing up the science with both hands in a culture yeah. where everybody's geek. You know, all the humor is geekery and the, you know, the <laughs> pillow talk is geekery. Everybody's just totally snarfing of science at a place yeah. like Caltech. So, okay, yeah, yeah it's a special institution to be sure. Yeah. Okay. So chemistry. So then go back to the the decision to not do chemistry because it's too smelly and oh so how you get back how you ended up going to the next phase right so of course going to caltech it was what i'd been good in high school was physics and math math and physics so i thought i'd be a physics uh, in physics then you get to caltech and you discover physics is pretty darn you know hard and mathematical level at a level anyway it's sort of so in a way, chemistry was sort of a side door from physics yeah. a little bit and also just a more worldly. And furthermore, um, you learn about drugs and um, you realize <laughs> those are made with chemistry and it's pretty fascinating. So uh, anyway, did you make any? Uh, yeah, I probably. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I, um, I dabbled, including. Yeah, I shouldn't say too much, but um, <laughs> the but chemistry you're... labs had their, uh, you know, had their attractions as well, I suppose. But you're still yeah. here and functioning. So I guess you. Yeah, didn't, uh, didn't mess up too bad. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I got rid of some excess neurons, uh, which is why I'm as well adjusted as I am today. <laughs> but uh, yeah, oh, and explosives too, actually. And boy, and I think of this today now. We, we used to go out in the, you know, carloads of us would uh, go out in the deserts, uh, you know, uh, near China Lake Naval Air Station, just you know, hundred miles from anywhere in the middle of the Mojave Desert, and we had a. One guy in the house was totally the main guy of this, but um, just car full, car full of pipe bombs and, you know, experimental explosives of all kinds. And, you know, one gallon jugs of gasoline in which you insert a pipe bomb and uh -huh. light torches like 10 feet away and then and then uh, light the fuse on the pipe bomb and run away. And then when the pipe bomb blows up, the gasoline becomes like a fireball oh, lit by these torches. And, and you can't, <laughs> but uh, over the hill, the Navy's having even more fun because you hear that booming at night. We're camping out there in these... Uh, naval explosions or dwarfing anything we can do but anyways an older chemistry major who was into explosives was a mentor in a way <laughs> and survived the experience all right so you finished that graduated discovered chemistry is like dangerous hazardous it's on your feet <laughs> and you wear all this horrible gear and you're still exposing yourself to god knows what and the molecules are so tiny that grinding for five minutes won't even get them together so you can't imagine the perils and hazards you're meddling around with <laughs> And uh, I just knew I wanted no part of it. So, so I went home to live in mom's basement and you know, strategize my next step. So then, okay. So how'd that? Oh, I tossed some resumes around companies in Boulder. Like what, what, what does a BS in chemistry get me? Well, you know, zilch, <laughs> as you might imagine. And uh, so then I thought, okay, well, those people in NCAR are having fun. How do you get to do that? Uh -huh. So I went and... Um, and CU being in town, so I, you know, looked, uh, well, it wasn't online, I guess. I Maybe I went to CU and just started lurking around mm -hmm. CU. And uh, there was a course called Introduction to Oceans and Atmospheres, maybe. And uh, and it was uh, taught by a guy named Ned Benton there. And um, uh -huh. and um, it was taught out of Wallace and Hobbes. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. that great old book. 
And I just started sitting in the back of his class, just as a townie, you know, going, you know, not yeah. <laughs> and then I sort of moved up, and you know, he'd ask his uh, rhetorical questions. So, why is the heat capacity of uh, of uh, water more than of air? And I'd say, oh, more internal degrees of freedom or something. And the uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> anyway, he noticed me soon, <laughs> I guess, and uh, sort of drew me in, and see, and he, um, I guess, saw my potential, and. Um, mm took me into his research group and got, mm-hmm. you know, got me in, in the off season to the graduate program there or something, you know, really reeled me in. Um, so you enrolled there, you're saying as a graduate student. Yeah. And in this graduate program, which is, uh, it was called astrogeophysics, I think in mm-hmm. those days. And, um, kind of astrophysics oriented and uh so they i didn't have a real atmosphere group yet in those days yeah not uh, really yeah, yeah. They, you know astrogeophysics had some upper atmosphere people murray salby was there if you know. oh, okay yeah so it, this was in an astrophysics department and i'd been dropped in into the uh, winter semester so i'd missed the fall semester when the whole cohort of graduate students together the incoming graduate cohort takes mathematical methods in physics and mm. uh, you know all these you know, the kind of the core intake curriculum of this whole program mm. I had missed by dropping into the winter semester, and uh, and so I was kind of flailing around. I was not you know I, I, astronomy great. I thought you awesome. I'll go into astronomy, and I slipped in the back door. I didn't have to take all the math up front, but that was not working well for me. <laughs> you know I had missed some math along the way. I had managed to evade some important math along the way. Not for the first time in my life, <laughs> Caltech too, and um, and it was starting to hurt me. Plus, plus, uh, you know, you think you want to be an astronomer, but um, uh, they have a they have a rough life. It's a beautiful, amazing thing they're studying. It's another chemistry. the The subject is beautiful and gorgeous and intellectually, you know, delicious and so on. Mm-hmm. But the lifestyle is. Um, well, it's difficult uh, in various ways. The competition is intense. Uh-huh. And, you know, people, better intellects than me, uh, would like to do that with their lives. Yeah. So I, I saw it wasn't going to be uh, great for me. Plus, I, yeah, plus remember, I would gone there because the atmosphere was interesting and it's got, so it's, you know, above the ground. So it's, you know, sky full, you know, my, mind in the heavens. But, uh, but on the other hand, it's, you know, right down here and it matters and, Clouds are pretty and stuff. So I, so I like, well, wait a second. So how much was that of a factor? I mean, you didn't, so far you just sort of said, well, in car people seem like they're having a good time. Did you have you? but you're saying you had some, well, I greatly enjoyed the, the idea of the atmosphere and its relevance. I mean, was that a, I, I devoured Wallace and Hobbes in Ned Menton's class, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, loved every page. I just loved the unspooling of Wallace. I was just in love with Wallace and Hobbes. So when it came to thinking, well, you know, I need to move on for graduate school somewhere else. I wonder where, uh, and uh, Holt, you know, and uh, Holt, maybe we glimpsed Holton too. I, you know, I wonder where's a good place to go for graduate school in this field where I totally love Wallace and Hobbes and Holton seems to be the Bible of this dynamical right, part. Right, right. You know, hey, they're all at the University of Washington. Yeah, yeah. And so, so I already kind of knew this was coming and Ned picked up the phone to Mike Wallace and said so uh, you knew Mike or? Yeah, yeah, I guess they had known each other somehow from okay. some, you know, East Coast deep time thing and um <laughs> And he said, I know, you know, I know we missed the deadlines of applying and yada, but you have to take this young man and, uh, and Mike Wallace. Uh, so he did that while he was still alive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he set me up and, uh, yeah. So Mike Wallace was my, uh, you know, made, made it happen at the university of Washington. All right. Yeah. So you got there by the next year or. Yeah. I got there in the properly, I think in the fall class, 
but I had missed the whole application season and I didn't. Yeah. Right. And were, but were you assigned to Bob Howes at the beginning? I know he was your advisor. I was given eventually. a choice. There were two people who, who, uh, who had a, you know, a leftover slot and it was Cliff Mass and Bob Howes. Mm. And, um, so I went and talked to each of them in a kind of interview mode. Yeah. What, when you were already there or when you were, uh, yeah, I guess upon arrival or something. Yeah. I okay. went into their offices. Right. And it mm -hmm. was, uh, I could do this or I could do this. Here are my two opportunities. Right. And uh, they both used the word mesoscale, which meant nothing to me, uh, right? But they used <laughs> it in a very different way. Uh-huh. And, uh, and Cliff Mass was, uh, uh, you know, fast-talking, clear, you know, the, clearly on top of his stuff, you know, nimble-minded, I guess. Uh, we would say, and he was uh, all about mesoscale, this and that, and it was kind of local to Washington. And, uh, and he'd say, we're going to, oh, we're so excited, we're going to go take mesoscale observations. And I said... <laughs> you know, what's a mesoscale observation? So he told me mesoscale. Oh, that means like these scales from 10 to 100 kilometers. And so I thought, oh, that means you got to take binoculars, right? <laughs> but I didn't, still didn't understand what I was choosing between, right? Uh, and then uh, Bob Howes, um, I think I, uh, I flustered him with it. I hit him with a question. And uh, he sat back as he does and pondered the question and was preparing an answer. And I... And I got a little nervous and I hit him with another question because, <laughs> oh, this silence is intolerable. So I hit him with another question and then he's like, they, you know, and I did, I just got, I got him buffered like four questions behind <laughs> and he was just to seem like this inarticulate kind of guy who couldn't <laughs> make any sense. But it again, it seemed to involve these mesoscale observations, but his involved um, going uh, on an adventure to Australia with an airplane, with a radar on it, uh, <laughs> the second semester of your graduate career okay, <laughs> and, you know, skipping the spring semester of classes to go to Australia and fly around in an airplane with a radar on it. And oh, okay. uh, I thought that sounded a little better than, um, than, uh, mesoscale observations around Washington state. <laughs> so I, so I took that from a, just a sheer adventure. Okay. Finally. So that was the Togo core field program. No, that was called no? EMEX. Oh, that was, e Oh, okay. The equatorial mesoscale experiment. There you go. Equatorial mesoscale experiment. Out of Darwin? Uh, or something? Yeah, it was. Yeah, and it was coordinated with the AMEX Australian Monsoon Experiment, uh -huh. and uh, AMEX slash EMEX. Uh, yeah, it was uh, so run out of Darwin, Australia. Uh, this would have been um, eighty nine, ninety, nineteen eighty seven. Seven. Okay. Yeah, fall of nineteen eighty seven. I think that's. Oh, right. was that was that one of the ones where they did all the Stratrop Exchange stuff? There was one. Yeah. Yeah, there I was also STEP, right? It was AMEX, step. EMEX, yeah, STEP, yeah, and STEP was the Stratosphere Troposphere Exchange Project. And right. that was uh, Danielson, or is that what his right. name I was? read yeah. those papers as So the ER2 yeah. was there. Yeah, 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 yeah. The ER2 was there flying way up in the stratosphere. And, yeah. uh, and then we had the, uh, the P NOAA P3s with their radars. Okay. Uh, chewing through, two of them, chewing, chewing around in the middle of the troposphere. All right, so seduced yeah. by the fieldwork junket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My first fieldwork junket, yeah. Cause, uh, yeah, cause adventure, you know, anyway, yeah, when sure. you're, when you're choosing your life ahead of you as a 20 something year old, doesn't the adventure, you know, sure. It's not about, I want to study this or I want to study that. It's like, sure. uh, I want to go on a big adventure cause I'm a young man and yeah. sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. having a big adventure. And then of course you come home and you have, and there's the data. All right. We went and collected the data. Now please spend five years, uh, you know, sitting in an office and, you know, exhausting exhausting this data for its value and that's a whole different thing but uh still i got the adventure up front did you actually work with that data oh yeah my whole dissertation was oh, okay. uh, was that data and it was useful because it was bounded in that way we had 10 flights uh -huh. 
Uh-huh. And uh, so, you know, there were the 10 cases, and it is how many fingers I have, which fits the mind well. And they were all kind of different and distinct. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was a beautiful thing. Is this where you got started doing the divergence profiles from the... <laughs> right, exactly. So, right, the initial plan was, we'll go out there with these Doppler radars and we'll do what everybody does, which is toss them into this kind of... 3D, you know, gridding and filtering why don't we, stuff. Maybe, why don't, we don't do this much. Why don't we explain a little bit? So the Doppler radar sees not only, sees where it's raining, but it also sees the how fast the air is moving in the places where it is raining. Yeah. But only along the line that the radar sees. Yeah. So by flying around, you could, I mean, what, I mean just yeah. explain it for a minute. Yeah. Okay. So there's three, you know, th- we live in three dimensions. So there's three velocity components and, uh, and these are turbulent, cloudy uh, storms and stuff. And you point the radar, uh, and the radar uh, was on the tail of the airplane, and it uh, sk- swept in a vertical plane. So you get this kind of corkscrew view through these storms as they flew uh, of uh, velocities, yeah, as you say, along the beam toward the radar. You or flew again, in a sort of a circle around it or something. No, it just flew oh. straight legs. Oh. I mean, all the planning had been done in advance, and it was just fly these kind of lawnmower, zigzag lawnmower kind of patterns through these storms. Okay, so not yeah. a circle, but you're still seeing it from many angles. Yeah, well, no, you only get a. It's like a corkscrew. You get a. You get a kind of a corkscrew. Uh, what's that? What's the pasta I'm talking about? The fusilli, fusilli maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and and the two aircraft would uh, try and coordinate a little bit so that at some point their beams would cross, mm-hmm. and you would get not only the component of, vo- of velocity along one beam, but also along the other beam. Right. So and can, uh, yeah. and bet- and you could view those as two out of three of a vector velocity. Uh, uh, but of course, what you see is the velocity of the particles and they're falling. And so if you have a tilted beam, you see the fall speed partly and not the air motion. And so there's this whole uh, game of turning the that data into some kind of knowledge about the three-dimensional hmm. Flow and velocity stuff going on in a in a thunder inside a thunderstorm, right? And nobody knew quite what the goal of all that was, except well, we want to process the data into you know better data, right? Well, I mean, there's I mean, there's no I guess what we should explain is there's kind of no uh, really good way to measure the the motion of the air. I mean, the wind in detail on the scale of a thunderstorm. Yeah, so this and, was sort of the best way to do that, is my, pretty much, right? Yeah, and the and the the gold, the missing link, and the gold is the vertical velocity, right. and you never get the vertical velocity because when the beam's pointing upward, you see the vertical velocity of the particles of the raindrops, but they're falling several meters per second, so you do not get the vertical air velocity right. at all by just pointing up, pointing a radar vertically, right? Because the fall speed kills you, and. Uh, and so you have to kind of infer it from the three-dimensional mass continuity of the right, mostly right. horizontal, better trusted, mostly horizontal part of the flow that you do measure. Yeah. And that is usually done kind of, it's people write down differential equations that are, uh, and try to solve them or something. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, the trouble is the error propagation in this kind of calculation is a nightmare. It's, you know, it's just in for, you know, in the, in the end you don't, you can't really propagate errors through all the math you're doing on all these data to turn them into a uh, mm-hmm. estimate of the dream, the, our dream, the vertical velocity. Okay, we have an estimate. It's 1.2 meters per second. Uh, but is it right or is it wrong? Or what are the error bars? It's really hard to know. And it's, right. and uh, all this was just kind of a sausage factory of software uh, that we fed it through. 
And I started to realize that, uh, you know, the divergence theorem, Gauss's theorem, what's it, what do you call that? Is it, do you call it? Um, you can say Gauss, I think. Yeah, anyway. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, okay. The theorem where uh, even, the, even if you, uh, where uh, you can measure things around a perimeter and get a perfect average over the area enclosed by that perimeter without having to go in there and measure the thing all over that area. It's right. magic, right? You, yeah, right. you just measure right. the perimeter and you know the it's average. It's like what goes yeah. in has to come out somewhere. Yeah. That's basically yeah. what it is. Yeah, but only on a certain scale, right? You don't, yeah. yeah, and so anyway, that's just the right way to think of the problem as kind of that integral problem rather than the differential equation problem where, the, you know, uh, it's just the, the noise and error just kill you. So that got me thinking, uh, well, why don't we do some line integrals? Instead of tossing the data into this sausage machine, and getting out some fields, uh, let's do the line integrals, which are quite easy to then, you know, put error estimates on and understand uh -huh. what you're calculating. And, you know, it's just the right way to do it. And, and, uh, and, uh, so that was the first idea. And then in Togo Core, right. we realized, oh, if we fly the plane in a small circle and look outward in all directions, right. You know, in two minutes, you get a big area, well sampled. Whereas if you fly like a lawnmower and look inward, it takes you 20 minutes to get this totally uh, time to space conversion muddled view of a pretty small area with huge error bars. Okay, wait a second. So Togacor yeah. was a big field campaign in the uh, Pacific in 91. So you were still a student at that time? That was my postdoc. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. so let's get to that. So you, yeah. so you write the thesis on the aircraft data, then your postdoc, we're here, right? I mean, uh, no, sorry, I mean, Bob Howes, really. Oh, oh okay. So you stayed, yeah. I didn't realize so I that. Stayed, yeah, I stayed. So my PhD thesis with Bob Howes became the basis for the planning of the flights of Toga Corps. We decided oh, okay. we I... need a new flight plan, and that's not fly around the outside and look in. That's fly around on the inside and look out. I see, okay. And uh, so I really, you know, I have, I designed the sampling of these, uh, okay. these uh, divergence. Uh, um, Big field campaign, Southwest yeah. Pacific, bunch of... Planes yeah, more than ten and, cases. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> thirty. It was a big, uh, yeah. big thing, right? Yeah, several months long. Yeah. Out so of you Guadalcan. wait. So when did you get your PhD? Uh, ninety two. Ninety two. Yeah. Okay. So oh, Togacore was right after that. Yeah, I got my PhD in June, and by uh, October we were, you know, flying off to the Solomon Islands okay. to set up the computers and at the airport and stuff. So I went straight into a, just double my paycheck, the uh, postdoc uh, with the same advisor and right. executing the, you know, the, the, the data I just slogged through for years. Let's go get, you know, five times more of 10 times better data. It was great, right? It was glorious. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. So then how, how long did you stay in Seattle? Um, well, after Togu Core, then, um, uh, so that was a four month field campaign, right? Yeah, we, uh, right. Uh, wrapped up in Seattle, totally cleaned out of my house. We moved off to, uh, off to the Pacific. I did not have a home at that point, put my stuff in storage or maybe back to mom's basement. Can't remember. Yeah. Uh, married, uh, married the girl I was still married to. Paquita. Yeah. You guys met in grad school? Yeah, we met in grad school. Okay. She was yeah. right. I guess I knew that. Yeah. We're night owls. And, uh, in those days, it was, you know, you can't imagine today computers were scarce. A scarce resource. Yeah. And the first Linux computer came in while we were students. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, and you had to sign up for time on that. And the, the nine to five during the daytime, the postdocs owned that kind of time. 
<laughs> grad students were left with, uh, you know, 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. Uh, and uh, and so we were in the we were the either conflict intolerant and or night owl uh, 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 copacetic uh, mindsets. Uh, and Correct. so we were often the ones there late at night uh, getting some mileage out of these computers and then, you know, want to go to dinner at nine or 10 o'clock. And uh, yeah, and so anyway, it's so relationship. <laughs> well, in a way, or a terrible, geeky, anti-romantic thing. I don't know, but um, it's just the truth. So was, did Bikini go to Togokor also? So we got married and I went out there and I was full time and flying the flights and everything. And she uh, was finishing up her master's uh, and uh, she came for the last month of the four months. I see. And then from there, we had our honeymoon, which was a six month trip around the, re- around the rest of the planet. Oh, that must have been nice. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. From Six months. That's pretty good honeymoon. Yeah. So we traveled all the world, had all this fun, dropped into Boulder to the new uh, exciting new Webster uh, program in atmospheric and ocean sciences, PAOS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the, then the adventure kind of fell off. And uh, those were hard years, actually. Really? How come? Well, uh, so I came back and, uh, you know, it was new office space. He was, ra- he was trying to wring office space out of a university for a new program, which, as you might imagine, is not quite easy. Yeah. And uh, in the end, I was assigned to this windowless uh, room, which yeah. to me was just an intolerable, uh, you know, offense to my dignity. Uh, uh, I've had a Windows office for 20 years, just got to say. <laughs> I'm I know. still in it. But I I'm knew. not there every day of the week, but yeah. just, just to get that on the record. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I know. And it's <laughs> it's privileged and it's snarky. Yeah, but anyway, for, for whatever reason, you know, a young man's uh, spirit chafes like <laughs> hell. Or <laughs> mine did at all this. And uh, so I had a kind of a rocky uh, relationship i guess with the whole situation and uh, just because of that or what? well it, through it all is this existential problem what are we doing with our lives right is a so Paquita went with you she had already finished by this time or yeah she, she came out okay. to togacore for its last month uh-huh and then we traveled from there from honiara solomon, right. solomon islands uh you know, through Southeast Asia and through Asia. We traveled through Asia together and Europe together. Uh-huh. Had all this fun. And then, you know, dropped into Boulder. She was going to do a PhD there. And oh, I, I see. Okay. And so I she transferred over. Okay. Yeah. 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 So we dropped in together and there we are in Boulder, you know, newlyweds post a multi-month high adventure uh, thing. And, uh, okay, here's your windowless office and here's the mountain of data you created that you should now uh i said that was the task work on yeah it was just uh you know i mean but there was so it was back to work was it that it was isolated because of new program or or because you didn't know what the future were going to be or being back in the hometown any dimension of that or of course right and of course yeah and right yeah exactly and and in a town you know the non-stationarity of uh home prices uh you know that today uh, it's out of control now. Yeah, it's but. out of control now. It was already, it, it, it was another, yeah, another humiliation I felt was, you know, my mother as a, a single school teacher raising four children after my father had left, you know, had a house in Boulder that I could probably never aspire to own. Right. So I think I'm a great success. I've gone off to school and traveled the world and come back to my hometown and I cannot, I will never aspire right. to own the, the home of my school teacher mother. Yeah. You know, it just, uh, <laughs> of course, this is now an incredibly common experience for people in cities all of over course, the right? country yeah. and the world. But yeah. yeah, well, like living in mom's basement, I did all this Gen, Gen X stuff way before it was cool. 
<laughs> or Gen Z stuff. I can't even remember uh, the generation. Yeah, that's about when. It, yeah, <laughs> that's about when it was happening. Yeah. yeah. So, it, but uh, and I have huge sympathies for the young today, and it just all these ways that the world is a right. a non stationary place, and things that work in one generation don't necessarily work in the next, and so. Right. What can you? What do you teach them as students? You teach them, I guess, to be resilient and ambitious, and you know, follow their dreams or whatever. Yeah, find their motivations because yeah. that's what's gonna pull you through the muck. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, so how long were you there at CU? A couple of years or? Was uh, yeah, it? it was a two-year postdoc, and so that was a timed two-year postdoc. Right. Yeah. And just as I'm approaching the cliff of post postdoc hell, in in a but in a Boulder town where there's Noah and all this stuff. Uh, Newt Gingrich uh, Ugh, yeah. wrote the contract with a, a, for yeah. America or whatever, and yeah. sh- the first government what has become what we now would call the first government shutdown, like we call World War One, World War One now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, the first government shutdown <laughs> was looming, and uh, the whole idea of government budgets was so wildly up in the air. Politics was just like looming, and so who's gonna? be hiring in that situation and all the, it seemed like the yeah. agencies weren't given out. The, I, don't, I don't know exactly, but yeah. everybody was sitting on their cards as far as like Superconducting super collider was killed a few years before that. That's yeah. What I remember. Yeah. Some big, yeah. Some big things had gone down. So it was, you know, it was really not clear where this was heading and it was not a good time to be looking for a <laughs> post postdoc permanent job. But yeah, did, and I, I literally was not finding anything. I was, you know, considering leaving the field, I would say, although not, you know, when you've invested that much, do you really have marketable skills in anything else? We tell ourselves. But, did, but you still had a strong kind of excitement about the work. I mean, you yeah. weren't disenchanted with that at all. Yeah, no, I was, and yeah, and I was still full of some curiosities. I, and, and, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. burning with questions, you know. So, yeah, I haven't told the story enough of how I'm sort of burning with questions and all this, um, yeah. you know, my own curiosities. I mean, I sort of know some of your papers from this early day, from approximately this time. Yeah. And, um, and they're, you know, they're very recognizable. You have a kind of recognizable voice and they're very original and everything. The ones I remember the most were from maybe a year or two after that. And, and, what I, and I was just starting to work in tropical meteorology in 97. So that's when I really started reading your papers. Oh, my polemic, or what you, you call it? Jeremiah. You seemed yeah. very angry. That was by those the, postdoc was, years in the closet, uh, <laughs> in the windowless closet. <laughs> right, because I remember I remember the first time we had an email exchange yeah. was when I was a postdoc in Seattle about 97. And somehow yeah. you wrote to me about something and I wrote back and I said, I really like your papers, but you seem angry. And you had an explanation like about that was purely scientific. Like, well, the, you know, Arakawa and Schubert's too hard to understand and they're making it too difficult. But it never occurred to me it was because you had like this job drama that <laughs> pent up some, uh, yeah. some frustration. Because I'm a little bit free of it, I can now confess that I can decode my entire uh, scientific uh, motivation space for you in the, in the simian realm of what's really going on, okay. which is authority issues. And uh, and those authority issues play out, of course, in the authorities of uh, jobs of science, but also uh, in the relationship of scales of motion in uh, the beautiful turbulent mess that inspires us all. Whoa! Which is, uh, you know, uh, yeah. What what's the role of the small scales and the large scales? And what I really despised uh, and chafed at, uh, kind of in the uh, well, Eric Cowan Schubert framing and everything, was this word forcing. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, the whole intellectual model was large scale forcing 
convection, you know, does its little puppet dance uh-huh. as forced by this large scale. <sighs> and uh, the large scale is what exactly is it? Well, it's what the large scale fluid dynamical solver, uh, you know, uh-huh. it, it produces. And nobody cares about what that is. We just care. We just well, let's just label it forcing and treat convection as a passive or slaved. Another word I don't love in our field: yeah. slaved response uh-huh. to this forcing. And uh, and I was trying to deconstruct that literature and find yeah. where is the sleight of hand when you do this scale separation. You do an average and then take deviations from the average. It's the most tedious little bit of bookkeeping. Yeah. There's nothing there but tedious bookkeeping. There's not one law of f- motion or cause and effect being Im- imparted. And right. somehow you go through 100 equations of basically, you know, averaging and de- deviations from average. And at the end, you've got this story, which is the large-scale forcing causes the convection to do this, which makes this compensating subsidence, which is there's this whole racket that I knew was... <laughs> wrong. It was full of it was full of these like implications in English that were wrong that everybody at the conferences had taken as you know in their yeah, yeah, yeah. customary meaning and stuff. There's well, just yeah, something you're, deeply you're wrong. Very, but right, I could not yeah. find the sleight of hand in the math. But it's a hell of a lot of math to slog through trying to find the sleight of hand. Yeah. So I mean, my you know those papers that you wrote were very uh, you know very perceptive and, and very influential. I think and. And my perception of it was, like, of the history of it was, I mean, I learned tropical meteorology in as much as I learned. The, my first learning of it was at MIT from Kerry Emanuel and then, you know, later from Bretherton at, at Seattle but um, and from reading literature. But, like, you know, there was this stuff that, that Charney and other people had done on CISC and then, and then Kerry and others decided that was all wrong and they came up with this other view that, was, that had grown out of Arakawa and Schubert. And so that was the, the, the drama that I was taught. As a as a as a student and a postdoc, and then reading your papers, I'm like, well, who's this weird young guy who's been doing radar? And you were real mad and had this totally other view, coming from a totally different direction. Like it was like orthogonal to that whole battle. Yeah, sort of mad at both of them. Yeah, you know, and and it's like, where's that coming from? And now, only for the first time, do I understand that it was all an allegory for the poor oppressed <laughs> postdoc. <laughs> yeah, in a way, right? Yeah. Well, and also, uh, and the and the politics, the the relationship of the individual to the large scale is uh, is like a really a social you know so the turbulent the turbulent convection is really the oppressed uh yeah well, underclass in the, of, well, the, it's, of the atmosphere or something right exactly <laughs> I, right i got into this because i fell in love with cumulus clouds looking out an airplane window on the way to iowa to toil in the fields of my uncle my first time on an airplane you know i still remember it uh it was looking at clouds you know while flying around them and uh yeah. Just, you know, incredible, right? They're just chiseled from marble, these uh, Midwestern yeah, yeah, yeah. summer clouds. And it's like landscapes you could imagine romping and yeah. playing on them, except they change every f- three minutes, you know, this like time evolving landscape. I was just in love with it. And uh, so, and I felt it had a great amount of, uh, you know, life force or something, agency, vigor, <laughs> you know, vigor, agency, life force. You know, I, I felt like it was a thing that had some heart to it. And then you come, and so you go into that field of science, and you come along, and you discover, you know, the people running the show have decided that is a <laughs> too complicated to care about response to some forcing, <laughs> and uh, it, it, yeah, it drove me it drove me batty, and then <laughs> okay. uh, and then and, 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 you know, projected onto whatever father issues and advisor issues, and you know <laughs> okay. the the na- the crazy nature of politics uh, and uh, and how individuals are. Um, you know, outvoted and all this, just all the injustices of the world, right? Of, yeah. Uh, well, you're also sensitive to language in a way that most scientists aren't, I think. 
Uh, Those yeah. papers are very poetic. Yeah, I would right, and that's what that. Yeah, I would slip in. in. That, yeah. I would smuggle in uh, li literary sensibility. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's very rare. Yeah, and I still yeah, do. I picked up on that. Yeah. Oh, and I've been told by uh, you know readers who are not uh, English as a first language leaders, I like your papers, but I don't know what you're saying or something. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm glad it gained me some high uh, <laughs> high-minded friends late in life. But it also you not know so I late. think that's uh, so late. This <laughs> was 20 years ago plus. Yeah. I think there are also people it has turned off. I know. Yeah. Of well, course. Okay. Yeah. All right. So all right. So then you ended up at. I don't know somehow. Sort of. So there we were. Yeah. Okay. So there we were. A crisis. Uh, no. Um, you know, running out of funding. You know, shall I leave the field? Um, you know, and go off to the private sector, which supposedly uh, you know hires people and pays more. This is the myth we've been telling ourselves. And uh, you know, enough people. Had, by then, I had uh, allies and friends and interested people. And uh, Dick Johnson and Steve Rutledge at Colorado State, both of whom I knew from the field campaign world and the tropical meteorology, yeah, yeah, yeah. the observational tropical meteorology world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Rutledge is a radar guy, and he was yeah. a student of Howe, yeah. so he you yeah. had the same advisor. Yeah. yeah. So they saw my peril, and uh, they cobbled together out of the fumes of their grants somehow. The two of them together cobbled together enough money to hire me as a postdoc for uh, you know six months or a year or something, just out of uh, you know pity or respect for my contributions. Well, they must which have is already great. seen yeah. that you were doing something good. Yeah. yeah, and I did go up there and I sat with their group some and we discussed yeah, things okay. and stuff. But uh, God bless them, they saw me through it. And then uh, George Kiladis also, I think, had his had his eyeball on me, and uh, he's at the NOAA yeah. lab there, and um, so he had me come give a seminar and. Um, and kind of a kind of a job interviewee thing. And uh, Randy Dole was the director there. Okay. There, there is a certain amount of flexibility there. So this Climate Diagnostic Center, CDC. Yeah. It was an experiment of NOAA's at some point to give big block grants for multiple years, you know, multi-person grants to these institutions. This one had gone to Maurice Blackman, you know, who's a friend of Mike Wallace. And yeah. So this was this Climate Diagnostic Center. And uh, so I went there and I, uh, I guess interviewed or gave a seminar or something. And, uh, and Randy Dole, uh, you know, drew me and reeled me in as a, and it was a little unclear, like, am I being hired? You know, it was always kind of the, you know, you, if push comes to shove, you knew they'd cover you, but they kind of mm. thought, you know, this isn't exactly, you aren't exactly our core mission or anything. Yeah. In other words, you had this sort of very independent identity in your own kind of question so they, right. either they weren't going to ask you or you weren't willing to just like do whatever it would take for them to fund you you were going to pursue your own direction and they were trying to sort of enable that in some way but there was only so much they were able or willing you know so yeah so that so that's yeah that's the story i got hired at series could sit at cdc and it was unclear whether that was right uh, so series yeah. is the sort of institute at the at colorado yeah. university boulder yeah but that's located at the NOAA lab in town it's okay that's where you yeah and you stayed there for quite a while right 10 years or something. yeah nine some years uh writing these uh soft money grants and stuff right and, uh, sometimes getting a little bit from uh from the NOAA. did uh, it get easier or was it i mean that's i so i that those are the years that i kind of got we you and i got to know each other over yeah. you know be going to a lot of conferences together and stuff and you always seem to be doing well and everybody knew who you were and you're you know doing yeah. important stuff but i mean was it a struggle or was it fine or was it? Well, nobody wants to fund you a hundred percent, right? You know, the right. first post, you know, NSF will give you a hundred percent of your own time once, you know, to get, get you through a tough times or something. Then, you know, 
you should really be writing grants for at most three or four months of your time, which yeah, means yeah. you need to write three or four grants. Yeah, but yeah. it's silly to write a grant for only three months of your time. So then you put a postdoc on there. Right, right. And uh, and so yeah. I had, you know, I started the game of juggling three or four grants with postdocs on them. And now I'm sort of hiring postdocs into this uh, yeah. NOAA lab which uses series as its kind of money laundry, yeah. uh, all of which I have no power within. Except yeah. I mean, all the soft money yeah. labs in the country are like this yeah. to some degree. Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a, we should say this is a standard mode of operation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, yeah, it's what, it's the game you're drawn into. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's a little bit odd, you know, but I mean, you were yeah, able to get the it, money though, without that much trouble. Was, yeah. Was my perception. Yeah. Anyway. I was winning. I was winning in the marketplace of ideas and stuff. Yeah. 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 Passionate and thoughtful and, you know, articulate and stuff. You know, you can win. Yeah. If you got ideas, <laughs> the way actually the world is hungry for ideas. Uh, yeah, yeah. If yeah. you're idea rich, uh, you know, yeah. the world, you know, bends down to right. you know, embrace you. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so I, I mean, I don't want to fast forward through it too much because you did a lot of interesting science over this time, but, but uh, in the interest of time, maybe we should skip some of that. Yeah. And say how you ended up here in Miami. So I went to Hawaii, uh, wrote to Ben Wang in Hawaii, got him to allow me to be an invitee for several months over mm -hmm. the Y2K event. So I'd be in a warm, I'd be on a warm island when civilization collapsed. Mm -hmm. And that was looking for a warm place to move to. Right. right. And, um, and uh, so we tried that. And then I spent a year at the University of Arizona, which also. Oh, uh, really? I totally forgot about was, that. Uh, yeah, it was quite tolerable. Uh, oh, and okay. I was just uh, telecommuting from there, but my wife had a postdoc there, Paquita had right, a postdoc right, right. there. Right. And uh, so we pondered moving there. And in fact, uh, there was kind of a crux moment where I felt we, we could have moved, we could have been two faculty members at the University of Arizona, uh -huh. or we could have been two faculty members at the University of Miami. And I remember asking Bob, how's so this? You got the offer you know, while you were at. Arizona. Yeah, well, we didn't See. have an an offer there, but it was clear. It was clear that uh, you know if we decide if we tell them that's what we want, they would them move. Miami, they would move the levers. Uh, University of Arizona. Oh, Arizona. They would move the levers to right. You know, begin to have two faculty positions. Materialize. At some point, that department right. totally collapsed. Right. Yeah. Well, now it, uh, now they're yeah they're, now they've been muddled in with hydrology and uh, right. Think, uh, that's yeah, how, totally that was an outcome of that. Yeah. yeah reorganized. Yeah. 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 So this is before that. So we anyway. Um, yeah, so I was looking for a warm place to move. Yeah, yeah, you know, we tried Hawaii, we looked at Arizona, and uh, yeah. and we and uh, we got this great, uh, you know, two professor jobs. You know, married couple gets two professor jobs here. That was an amazing move by Miami. In other words, it's a thing that most universities won't do easily. Yeah, if at all. Yeah, and and Miami made a great department by doing that. Yeah, they hired several couple, like three or four at least. Yeah, in our, in and, our and, other fields as well, yeah. Well, I'm just talking about the people I know. Yeah. You know, I, it must be more than three or four then yeah. if you count other fields. Yeah. Somehow somebody had some vision there to say, this is the way to do it. All these good people who are having trouble finding two jobs, like if we just do it, we'll yeah. be awesome. And it worked. Yeah. And still nobody else has learned that lesson as far as I can see. Yeah. I mean, we still can't hardly do it at Columbia and I don't see hardly any place else doing it the way you guys did. And the group you guys ended up with is fantastic. Yeah. This was so our somebody Dean should pay attention to that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know who should learn that historical lesson, but yeah, it seemed pretty obvious to me. Yeah. If right. If a Dean can get that kind of power from their university, they can you know, really power up a school from, you know, from, yeah. Not you just have to get over to the fact tier. that everybody yeah. has to be the perfect individual that you wanted to hire just because they are perfect in every way. You know, you have to just, a little more flexible you know and then it yeah you win yeah 
Right. Okay, Miami. And that was however many years ago it was. I don't know, 15 years ago. Yeah, it's turned into 15 years ago. Yeah. But the adjustment to, you know, being a regular faculty member was fine. I mean, it was the improvement in life status that you had. Yeah, it grows on me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, being part of a faculty instead of um, a subject to a laboratory, uh, you know, power structure or something was just a balm. Yeah. For these authority issues of mine, (laughs) being part of a faculty is, uh, yeah, yeah, is what I always wanted, I'm sure. You know, we shouldn't go, I mean, it would take too much time to go into the detail of all the science you've done in the last few years. But my sort of broad read of it is that like there's some threads of it that have been continuations of the stuff you did from the beginning with mm-hmm. radar data convection and stuff but then a bunch of new ideas that have evolved over time well it's all about of- this scale problem there's only one problem that really interests me and it is the problem of scale yeah and uh and and that's in politics and that's in uh, sociology and that's in ecology and stuff and it's in and it's in fluid dynamics and it's in uh so define the problem of scale for us uh, well, what's the relationship between these uh, small scales that appear to have, you know, vigor, agency, freedom, mm-hmm. and these larger scales that are, you know, of course, they're not forcing everything, but anyway, they're, you know, undeniable in their power. What's the relationship between the small scales and the large and scales? And has your view of the answer of that uh, evolved Individual in agency way? and group agency. Well, I, I, you know, I, I always knew I was playing it as a, it was just echoes and echoes of a, of a philosophical question. Which and is, I, uh, which is, you know, what's the relationship between the, you know, the individual and the and the collective? Or wow, the, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the one thing that interests me, and I play it out in uh, over here in meteorology, and I'm also fascinated with uh, the social sciences and ecology and stuff. Where it's everywhere, this issue is everywhere. And you feel it's the same problem in all those? I well, only if there's a solution at the generalized level of. What is this relationship between the local and the global or the, uh, the individual yeah. and the collective? If there's an answer, then it turns out it was one problem. But if every single field and every application and every scale yeah. range is just must be, you know, exhaustively described, then there, there wasn't one issue. There's just an echo. But of you're, a, but you're over issue. the anger and the father issues now. It seems. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so has that changed the science? Yeah, instead of right, instead of wanting to battle against authority figures uh, and with a somewhat fading intellect uh, of middle <laughs> life, to w- wondering now, now what can I, you know, what what can I do positively? Right, you know, right. I, I've done. I all mean, the, you you uh, are an authority figure, although you yeah, may not be comfortable I, with that. But. Let's say I won all those critiques. Uh, <laughs> uh, now what? <laughs> Right now, what, so what are you going to do? So you know, my latest, I guess, excitement is reading uh, evolutionary game theory, which has come a long way. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Does that help you with your? Well, it's uh, it gets me back to those basic questions. I still remember my PhD defense, and other people remembered. Uh, also, I, uh, I, I, I said uh, the best defense is a good offense. You know, my PhD defense was a long rambling thing about this problem of scale and you know in medicine it's you know cancer versus organs versus you know uh, organisms and it's all about this problem of scale and organization and stuff and i literally i tried to i was going for doctor of philosophy by being outright <laughs> philosophical about it because i just read the selfish gene by dawkins if okay. you know that. and dawkins was uh he had, he had the rigor of uh, going to the bottom of things he said the element the unit of selection is the gene and all this other stuff, all this group selection and kin selection, that's all woolly bullshit. 
Uh, and, uh, and I liked that. As a young man, I liked that. But actually, nowadays, you know, the general problem of evolutionary theory has come a long way. And there is group selection and there is uh, agency to levels other than the individual mm. in uh, biological systems. Mm. You know, as is well known by anybody who's ever lived in a family or a tribe <laughs> or anything, right? There's, there's genuine agency to things other than individuals. Yeah. And, uh, but how to describe Mobs. that, right? <laughs> yeah. And so how to describe that, you know, is there a mathematics for that yet? Is there a, yeah. is there, are there measures for relative amounts of agency in the, uh, the uh. definite and local versus the, you know, hazy, but, uh, but coherent, uh, larger scales. Mm. And I, so I feel like that qu this question is becoming newly tractable, uh, Maybe because of work in all the different fields, um, mm. and uh, some of that, and I do feel like game theory is the right way to think about where there's where there is this issue of agency. There is vigor. There's mm. a there's a, a vital force being channeled, rather than um, you know forcing in response or uh, a, another mm. word I hate from dynamics is um, dominant. Mm. Yeah, you, you know, eighty percent of the variance of X is Y, so let's say Y is dominant, and you know, eighty percent of Y is uh, Z, so Z is dominant. Anyway, it's dominant <laughs> is a word that allows you to throw away the rest, and what gets thrown away with right. all the rest is these kind of you know vaguer, right? But, but you have powerful, to do that to make progress scale sometimes. I mean, you have to throw away something, or life I know, is impossible. but uh, <laughs> but uh, if. Uh, the word predominant is the only one I will tolerate being spoken to me in my classes or anything. Predominant, not dominant. Why is that better? Because uh, dominant says one suppresses the other. Predominant right. says, you know, mostly or you know, oh, majority, okay. right, right. right? Predominant is a description. There are very dominant few scientists who care this much about language. Yeah, okay, yeah. And forcing <laughs> in response, of course, I always, you know, grit my teeth about What's a better word for that? Uh, well, no, it, it's the right way, but uh, but uh, as long as it's done with the right uh, appreciation, right? You take a coupled system, you slice it in half, uh -huh. and you, the way you study it, the way you understand a thing that's coupled is you slice it in half and say, oh, well, how does A affect B? And you can do that with probes and tests and one-way uh, forcings right. and look at the responses and B, B on A, and uh, and then you understand more about the system. So that's a it's a tactic. It's not a description of the coupled system. It's a tactic for taking apart coupled systems but don't throw away the bathwater with the babies i think the uh, problem is you were born in the wrong era like instead of being contained in one field of science you should be doing you know natural philosophy writ large yeah exactly the way they did right? it 500 yeah. years ago right how natural <laughs> a philosophy sh should be informing moral philosophy yeah but isn't because we haven't argued loud enough yet yeah wow <laughs> But so, okay, yeah. so so we could go on this like for a long time, but but I want to get to at least one other topic because it's uh, one thing that you've done that I don't know anybody else in the field has done, and that's um, spend a lot of time with uh, the climate skeptic community, to put it <laughs> as politely as I can. All right. Uh, which you did for a while, although you didn't, you know, I don't think you've ever, I don't know if you've ever written anything about it or talked about it publicly. I only, I know about it from knowing you personally, but can you talk about how that happened and when and why and what your experience yeah. was? Okay. Well, this is my, uh, yeah, I made it sound like I'm spoiling for a fight. Uh, but actually I am a very conflict intolerant person being the third child of, uh, <laughs> in a, in a contentious family. Uh, and, and, uh, the same way I met Paquita by, you know, oh, we'll just let the other people use the computers all during the good hours and we'll just take the, <laughs> we'll just take the leftovers. So I, I'm actually quite a conflict intolerant or try, always trying to find the middle, find the consensus, trying to find, uh, you know, the way that, it, uh, that, you know, that, uh, these people on the other side are surely not wrong or, 
something. And, uh, you know, I'm just giving, bending over backwards to give people the benefit of the doubt. All right. So yeah, that was here at Miami. The, uh, the student uh, organization, it's called Row, Row, Row. It's the uh, student, uh, you know, those are Greek letters, but it's a joke. It's the student um, marine science uh, department. Mm -hmm. uh, the student club kind of haplessly invited some haplessly meaning they weren't fans of these guys, but they just thought this would be a yeah. Fun I think they didn't know what they were stumbling into. Oh, They're like, okay. oh, let's have a climate uh, panel or something. Oh, okay. And um, this and is like how long ago? Uh, maybe ten years or so. Okay. And uh, Brian Soden was going to be the uh, the moderator for this panel, mm -hmm. and um, and he couldn't make it, and so he wrote to me and said, "Can you can you go be you know moderator at this panel? Yeah, okay, I'll be moderate. I'll be moderate." I'm a good moderator. So I went there and I moderated this uh, panel where these skeptics come in. Uh, Were they arguing with somebody else on the mainstream side or? No, I think they just, here was their chance to like give their spiel to the young generation, okay. like the total denier side, almost, you know, with almost no one there to actually. So uh, 10 years ago. Them. So this yeah. is, was it, a, who was president Obama or how I, was it really 10? If it was really 10 years ago, it was Obama already, but I, suspect maybe it was more than 10 years oh, okay yeah you know i've learned to double things but i can't double it to 20 because i know it was here in miami <laughs> yeah. all right and, anyway. know, i've only been here 15 and it wasn't uh, right, right. Away. okay reasonably okay, early one of those in your early time. years yeah, here yeah. yeah so this event went and it's fine and stuff but I'm, and a man in the audience came up and uh and uh, uh started talking to me as moderator uh you know i smoothed the feathers and stuff and you know tried to make sure i said now these are controversial ideas or whatever but he came up and introduced himself. Norman uh, uh, Rogers is his name, and uh, he's a uh, he's a he was like chief scientist for the Heartland Institute. And, wow! Uh, and uh, I didn't know that was a position. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and so I uh, got talking. Did he with actually him. have scientific training in our field? Yeah, well, not in our field. He's uh, but he's an engineer. You know, there's okay. a type, right? Which is uh, oh, yeah. I I had engineering. I, you know, I had thermodynamics, and right. he was hazed a little by physics as was my stepfather. So I know it's a syndrome. I think he had a master's degree in physics, uh -huh. which means uh, he was, you know, ejected from a physics program without passing. Uh, uh -huh. Right. So he's, you know, master's in physics, asterisk. Right. That person has, nobody a, does that on purpose. There's yeah. a grudge in that person, <laughs> yeah. I believe, because physics, uh, you know, yeah, who it yeah, attracts yeah. and then who it rejects. Yeah. Uh, you know, I understand what a bitter rejection uh, yeah, feeling yeah, yeah. is. And yeah. I believe the master's in physics is a mark of a certain kind of, yeah. yeah. But anyway, I don't want to psychoanalyze, but, um, you know, and he came up and asked some questions, and I thought I could set him straight. I just totally thought, all right, here's a smart, rational person, an educated person. I can set him straight. And um, he actually, uh, you know, he was way ahead of me and done a lot of reading, done a lot of thinking. He remains a correspondent of mine, a friendly correspondent of mine. Yeah. We cheer each other every happy birthday. And he sends me the most scathing, you know, solarscamnevada.com, yeah. whatever. Lives yeah. in Nevada. Totally. I've, I've been trained you in some of this stuff. I saw some email from him that you forwarded me at some quite point. Quite yeah. detailed. And it is absolutely from, you know, he's not paid by some oil company or something. This is his, oh, I believe that. This is yeah. his passion. And um, yeah. man, he knows how to read, you know, the prices of things. He, he's really sm he's smart. Anyway, gained my respect. Yeah. And uh, he's a millionaire because he made a computer company sometime in the 80s and sold it. So he's got a few million bucks. Okay. So he lived in this, uh, he lived in the Sears tower on the, uh, floor up where the swimming pool is, the swimming pool in the sky in the Sears tower. And, uh, he said, why don't you come to the Chicago, uh, heartland meeting 
and you can stay in my condo and swim in the swimming pool in the sky. And you go down to this uh, Heartland meeting, which is a thousand people or something. And it is the climate skeptic, uh, you know, beehive. Yeah. And, um, you know, take it in. And I thought, all right, I can, I'll take that in. So Scott Denning and Bill Gray were like the, the, the two scientists I saw there. And uh, Dick Lindzen, of course, was a superstar. There. Sure. Yeah. He was a superstar there. Yeah. And, uh, and the rest were um, a weird mix of uh, conservative America. And there was like a religious dimension over here. And mm -hmm. there was totally the literally, you know, fossil in bed with the fossil fuel uh, state uh, delegations from various states and then mm -hmm. alec alec you know the yeah yeah american yeah. legislative <laughs> yeah something yeah like, there's yeah. a there's a That's you know there a, is a, yeah. an establishment to all this oh yeah and it has a religious wing and, it, and, it, and so many different angles and uh so i really enjoyed uh, seeing that in a way and a few things have actually stuck there you know they have some critiques that i believe you know have some validity of the culture of our science and stuff like that so we shouldn't totally throw out the baby with the bathwater, even though really. Um, so try to express those critiques in as, in as uh, generous a way as you can. Well, the one I remember the best and that I'm frequently sending people to is if you haven't read um, about the Laputans uh, in um, Jonathan Swift's uh, Gulliver's Travels, he's going around the internet. Yeah, so yeah. he meets the strange Laputans. And you, if you, do, you, you absolutely, so somebody there who was, you know, uh, literarily, liter literarily minded uh, gave in one of their presentations, uh, presented this. And I, if you haven't read about the Laputans, you must read about the Laputans and be, how sure are you that we aren't those fops? And this is 1650 or something. And it is, a, you know, it is a land where some like high-minded astronomers uh, scurry around and they're worried that the sun is going to burn out or a comet will hit. Right. And it is the most scathing critique of a fussy, uh, you know, scientific worry warts that think, uh, how do they say, you know, because the globe, because, uh, because a circle and the globe have the same number of degrees, that uh, one can know the workings of the world, you know, because wait, wait, one wait. turns a globe or something. But explain to me how this is. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm missing how this is a critique of climate science. I mean, what are, what are we doing wrong? Just because somebody, well, is wrong about it's, it's like a, just because somebody's wrong about something doesn't mean that it's a humility. It's a humility check. Uh, yeah, but I mean, and uh, if you've done all your humility checking, you're fine, and let's roll on and juggernaut this thing. But uh, if you haven't quite done all your humility checking, um, okay, but. Yeah, but it's a little hard to take this kind of advice from these guys. I gotta right. say, yeah, like, you know, it's course. like you know, yeah. you can you can. It's one thing to say, you know, you should be soul searching and you know, completely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But who's telling you this? Yeah. I don't know. So, but but okay. But let me not give my opinion. I mean, so how did you like when you got to the end of this meeting? You went home. So you gave a talk or something? Or you? No, I was literally just, just a fly listening. on the wall. Okay, so yeah. you get home and what did you think of it? Um, what I came away with was uh, realizing that uh, the difference here is um, that we use, that scientists use evidence uh, in a quest for truth. Yeah. And uh, we understand that the evidence, uh, you know, t has weaknesses and we use tapestries of evidence and we're guessing, we're working toward, we're aiming at the best guess given all the evidence. Right. And these people view the situation uh, as a courtroom uh, adversarial situation. Yes. yes. Everything is ammunition in right. an adversarial battle. Right. 
Yeah, and uh, and that is a whole different way yeah. to be arguing. Yeah, I mean, and this has become be, broadly understood yeah. by now, but maybe yeah. you were one of the yeah. first. And we're just talking past each other. And so then you wonder, So okay, they didn't convince you, in other words. Oh, no, not, yeah, no. <laughs> no, I just learned that, you know, where this is all coming from. It's, and didn't you go back several times? It's all Perry. Do I remember no that correctly? Um, no, I just went to the one Oh, just meeting. once. Oh, yeah. Okay. And it was because I was subsidy. You know, I wouldn't pay them the eight hundred dollar registration fee or something. But I'd stay in a. Oh, they wouldn't cover you and invite you. Well, no, just Norman, to have uh, one real guy. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe only if I spoke or something. Scott Denning has gone back and he has given, uh, you know, the, yeah. the, the the one real scientist lecture there. And uh, I, God bless him. Yeah, he's a. Okay. It's nice to have an adversarial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Place to hone your arguments, right? Yeah. We need a. I think we need a healthy adversarial. Uh, culture around this and instead what we've you know science has circled the wagons and those people are you know just hurling uh, every stick and rock as evidence and it's not uh it's but, not it's, but it's one thing if it's to be adversarial if, if it's like everybody is playing by the same rules right but as you say if it's adversarial and we're seeking truth and the other side is just you know kind of cynically and i would say intellectually dishonestly just trying to take a legalistic approach and they don't want to hear you know the yeah, they don't want to hear it. Then, and we do. Then it's not a productive exercise, right? Right. I mean, so they have the CO two is uh, innocent until proven guilty is their working position. Right. Okay. So you, so you only went the one time, but you sustained the relationship just with this one guy. Yeah, I correspond with him quite a bit, and I and I we see, have uh, we have assailed each other with our best you know arguments and stuff for years, and it's so, led nowhere. Or it's, well, yeah, yeah, right, and. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, including you know, meta arguments, uh, confirmation bias. He has a whole thing about confirmation bias and how he's she's sure we're stuck in a confirmation bias bias spiral, just as we're sure maybe they are. And oh yeah, they, they just at level after level after level. It, it it's made me realize that this conservative impulse is a, is is like temperamental. It's <laughs> it's a tone. It's a tone you bring to existence. Uh-huh. And then, uh, and then, just it works its way up all the way to the filigree of you know elaborate yeah. argument, and um, and uh, I think it. Uh, the other thing I think of it as is um, our, our body politic has a gut brain uh, battle going on that is extremely unhealthy, yeah. and and uh, and as a result of that, I think we're starting to have an autoimmune disorder too, which is like this all this border wall crap. Maybe the yeah right. There's an autoimmune disorder, uh, but the basic unhealth is. Um, is, uh, you know, the, the brainy people, you know, want to say, oh, infrastructure can be replaced tomorrow, you know, wave their hands over, you know, costs and, oh, some smart, I read a report that some buddy who's smart said that we can do, you know, throw it all away tomorrow. Right. And, and the people are out there, you know, making the bloody electricity turn another day are, uh, are a little, uh, you know, are, you know, up to here. Oh, with no, these, but okay, but wait a second. These, okay, uh, wait a second, wait a second. With these, uh, it, it, oh, wait a second. No, but it would, yeah. one thing if that was the actual argument. Right. See, that's the argument we should be having. Oh. And some people are having. But the choice that the right made is not to have that argument, but instead to try to discredit the science. Well, that's because... Of climate. The, you know, yeah. if, if what they would have said was, and some people do say this, but if what they would have said was, okay, global warming is a thing, but it costs too much to do it, we don't want to change, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that would be the real argument. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as Merchants of Doubt by Oreskes and Conway shows, you know, they, instead they didn't want to, they chose not to go that route, but instead to follow the tobacco model yeah. and say, oh, the science is corrupt, you know, the experts disagree, whatever. Like that's the, in my view, that's the, 
that's the problem right there. I wanted to ask what's, how this has influenced your view of the politics today more because my view is it started with climate denial and now it's just everything's fake news. The climate yeah. denial movement sort of taught the right how to deal with, you know, that approach is now pervades everything. Everything's fake news. You guys are just confirmation bias and it's, you know, and it's uh, all institutions yeah. are, are uh, you know, are corrupt and blind and so on. And you don't understand the, you know, you elites or whatever, you know, it's all, it's all, but it's climate denial is where it was invented or, or maybe it starts, you know, with other starts with tobacco or whatever, but it's that playbook. Yeah. So do you feel that this has helped you understand like the current state of the world or am, am I wrong? Do you, I mean, well, the gut brain battle cannot be won uh, <laughs> by either side, you know, you uh, the gut brain battle is a loss for both at, if if fought as a battle how is it right? a gut brain i'm not sure i how is it a gut brain battle I, it seems to me that there's gut on both sides and brain on but I, 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 I is guess, that really uh, how you want to characterize it I, um well i do yeah i do think that uh you know the idea that uh um fractions of a degree decades from now caused by invisible gases are so certain that uh, we need it's more to, fractions. Uh, it's a few degrees. All right. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, uh, are, are just, so, you know, that, that, that is on the same level as, uh, you know, tomorrow morning people have to pay their energy bills and stuff like right. that. That means you want this to be fought on the field, on the dry field of reason where the brain is advantaged. And I believe there are people who think this is such an existential battle. You fight it by saying whatever, you have to say to have the effect that your strategy is advanced. And that is maddening from those of us who want, right. we want to argue it. We want to argue it in the dry, clean field of reason. And, uh, and um, there's just nothing about existential battles that says they have to be argued in the dry, clean fields of reason. Just as a, you know, this is like the American revolution, right? right? The but, British but we, said, well, you cowards, why don't you line up? So we can shoot at each other and we'll win because we have more but, people. Well, what's this hiding behind trees business? Well, what we know now is that at least at the beginning, <laughs> yeah. and I think still to some degree, this culture war, yeah. which is what you're describing, was yeah. all orchestrated by, you know, fossil fuel companies who are operating on a completely brain level. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, it's manipulated. It's a, it's an artificial gut brain battle because yeah. these guys knew perfectly well what was going on. Yeah. And they just didn't want to admit it. And didn't want to face the consequences of it. So they made up a fake intellectual battle. And that's, you know, I mean, I think you're right on some level. I mean, we're, we're the, the, the desire of climate scientists to like, or the, or the compulsion to like argue with the deniers to, will, you know, to the bitter end is like sort of missing the point. Yeah. Cause it's really a political struggle and we're too, you know, don't see that, but that doesn't make us wrong. Yeah. <laughs> It just makes us well, not, it just makes us not good political strategists. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for a while I went on, I was almost uh, trying to represent uh, the, them in our spaces a little bit, trying to be a, be able you know, yeah. bring the denier, you know, be still myself and true to myself and true to my tribe, which is the right. tribe of rationalism, but bring that. Right. And, um, maybe the high point of that, I, you know, bounced something off Bjorn Stevens, which was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, pretty, it was pretty open-minded guy. Yeah. These things go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And his, uh, you know, the thing he did that really clipped, that clipped my drift in that direction was, you know, all these uncertainties, they're only uncertainties about how long until it's 
an intolerable, disastrous, right. you know, heart-rending destruction. Right. And maybe that's 50. <laughs> okay, maybe it's 100 years instead of 50 years. What does that mean? You know, what? So now you right. ignore it? So it's basically right. about time scale. And, and I realized it's, it's really about time scale. And the trouble, I think the trouble on the, on the other side is that, you know, religion owns the future for many, many people. The future is not owned by science. And, you know, the processes right. we observe and describe today will continue right. uh, unabated uh, re, uh, through right. 100 years. There, you know, every generation since Jesus has been convinced that this generation, he's going to show up and rapture the good and leave, you know, then right. all, everything, all the, all the normalcy is going to be gone. Right. Laws of physics will be suspended and justice will be right. brought with a sword. There, you know, literally huge fractions of our country believe that really. And that means it's when you're talking about 50 years from now, blah, blah, blah. That, you know, I think I feel like that's in a way the battle. And this is where I'm kind of heartened to see like uh, atheism and no, you know, no religionism kind of creeping into the, yeah. the just the centuries old kind of recalcitrant uh, Christendom. Oh, actually, that is, I mean, our, wait, that so is our heritage. So were you raised with any religion? Uh, yeah, somewhat. Right. Yeah. And in fact, uh, this father of mine, uh, who left us, uh, who was super, he, he was, How old? Uh, he, when you, when, I uh, he left when I was in sixth grade. Oh, okay. And You're so, sixth grade. yeah, so it was before. And yeah. And I suppose it was, uh, he would live for a while. He lived in Boulder across town working on his mm. dissertation. So that mm. must be about when I was getting the electrodes mm. on my head. Mm. So here's a totally rational guy, all into speed reading and the mind and the brain and stuff. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and uh, really, he left us and moved to Oklahoma, and then later to Texas to for the most Bible thumpingest, you know, uh, miracle uh, expounding. Uh, wave your arms in the air and speak a language that's probably you know Aramaic, but who knows? Because uh, uh, just a total way out there limb of uh, of. Um, of that kind of religion. And he tried to drag us into it. You know, he tried so to, he got into this religion or he, yeah, yeah. He went he just totally, of his own or was yeah, it because of totally went that direction. And, uh, oh. and, uh, but you, but you hadn't been written, raised religious before that or, well, you know, he, he, he made my mother and, you know, and him take us to some church, so but he it was, was religious. It was all bolder churches. You know, it was never quite enough for him. I think Very he was aggressive. Yeah. You know, he made us go to some church, but that was just merely Boulder stuff. And then at some point, you know, his calling was you got to leave the kids and the family and move off to the heart of the, of this throbbing miracle culture. Oh, so of, he uh, left because of religion. I, I, you know, he left and moved to, moved to these Bible thumping uh, places. Wow. And, you know, and I was just a teenager and my brother was a little younger and he'd, you know, have us down in the summer. He actually tried a custody ploy on my younger brother. Wow. that would have taken him into this spooky world. And my younger brother is the most anti-religion person. He is a howling, bitter, <laughs> stuck about spirituality atheist because of the way my father tried to reel him into this pit of, um, you know, irrational. What's his actual sect? What was his actual sect? You know, I don't know. One of these evangelical oh, oh, things, okay. you can't pin it down. Right. And well, it's it kind of about name, which but, yeah. it's about which preacher the cassette you're, li oh. you're listening to the cassette tapes of day and night. Yeah. And it was multiple ones of them. And it's just weird. We can't understand it. Cause he was really our intellectual star and a oh. uh, lodestar really. And, um, uh, and, uh, you know, the family, we just we keep trying to deconstruct it. Now he's gone and, you know, he sort of went uh, down through dimension is gone and stuff. 
but uh and so you know you hate to second guess people's um uh, psychology or something, but you know, I've talked to my mother, I guess about this. And she yeah. said, um, he would, yeah, he would have these periods, these binges where he was, you know, going to get a little wild, wild minded about the religious stuff. And, uh, she believed she could smell, you know, she could smell in the bathroom when he was going to go this way. And she believes there's a chemical aspect to it. You know, just subtle, right? You live with a person, wow. you know what they smell like. And one day there's this, you know, you know, it's not asparagus, but anyway, you, you, <laughs> we all know, right? That uh, there are ways in which if you're just infinitely living with a person with one bathroom, you, you know that one day it's a little <laughs> different. And then that's that week where he's like just wound up about, you know, this, this uh, religious stuff which is steered by the preachers into, you know, the man should have dominion over his house and stuff. There's a whole, I mean, there's a whole structure. Some, someone gives that structure, dominionism and stuff. There's these structures coming down historically that give shape to it. It's the only way I can deconstruct him is that he just had an almost chemical, you know, maybe chemical, maybe spiritual, whatever, but just an extremely low level sense of, um, of a spiritual feeling that got turned steered into this kind of icky version of Christi Christianity uh -huh. that has, that we are all living in a recoil. We're all recoiling from through the rest of our lives. His children uh, feels like I forgot how we got onto that, but yeah, it had something to do with science and climate. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right. I have one more uh, topic I want to get to, cause we talked about it a little before and it, I think it's a, um, you know, we both have some degree of, uh, I don't know, midlife crisis or sort of like retirements now starting to be visible out <laughs> for me. It's still some distance away, but yeah. like you can start to imagine it, you know, your career's fine, right? Don't have yeah. to survive anymore. Don't have to, you know, worry about that stuff over all that, you know, mostly recently, you know, taking care of younger people these days, you know, yeah. thinking about what's the point at this, you know, what's the right way to spend the remaining years. Yeah. So I want you to describe for me your struggle there, which is, you know, different than the past struggles, no doubt. Yeah, it is. And, um, yeah, it's in a way it's just, um, calming down, you know, the motivations, which, like I said, I've been channeling vote motivations from a volcanic, you know, issues around authority and, <laughs> you know, self and other, or, you know, group and individual, those are primal things. Right. And I've been channeling them through, uh, yeah. my science all these years. And, Maybe just with age, I'm sort of calming down about that or realizing the human condition or my condition is, you know, finite and, uh, and you can't win anyway. Yeah, so no, why, so, <laughs> why yeah, fight? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I, you know, smuggling a little poetry into a obscure scientific publication. Why don't I just write poetry if that's what I, I'm supposed to do? Cause what do I got? <laughs> 10, 20 more years. Do you do write poetry? Or? Well, some uh, some would say I write nothing but. Well, okay, but I mean poetry that's not uh, disguised yeah, no, as science. But, uh, yeah, no, and closer to comedy, you know. Really, why? What? Yeah, can I find a way into comedy? Uh, is really, you know, if I, yeah, yeah. Now that I've made my bank in the STEM fields, you know, professional salaries uh, stored up for a lifetime. Now, can I hit the arts? Uh, Are you really thinking about that? With a with a. Yeah, I mean, geez, yeah. If there's if, if there's some doorway, I don't, but I don't know, I don't know the way in. But go um, to open mic night. That's or my joy. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, literally. Yeah. I think you, if you want to do it, you you'd joke. have to do it. So I don't joke. So I've been pondering about podcasts. You know, I'm a podcast hound. I listen to them all the time, and I know. I'll the, tell. Wait, let me tell you a story. Yeah. A second. Yeah. My father, okay, yeah. was a trial lawyer for his whole career. 
you know, most serious guy you'll ever meet. I mean, he has a sense of humor, but like not, you know, not a relaxed, you know, jovial guy. I mean, he's a great, I mean, I love my father, but he's very serious, very intellectual, very, uh, you know, and he, he, um, retired in his, I don't know, early seventies. And then, uh, in his late seventies, like, I don't know, 77, 78, started taking improv classes yeah. with people who were all in their twenties and thirties and trying to be actors and comedians. Yeah. And he did that for a while. And then he started doing storytelling, uh, you know, like the moth story hour kind yeah. of, and he's been doing that. He's not so good at the improv. Cause that, you know, he said he wanted to, I asked him, why are you doing improv? And you know, you're and he said, cause I want to learn to be more spontaneous. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, I guess that's what it's for. Turned out, you know, that as my mom said, like the things that make you a great trial lawyer don't necessarily make you good at improv. <laughs> right. Storytelling is a little better because you can practice it. Yeah. And so he, you know, he's got stories to tell and it's mostly yeah. about like his youth and growing up in the Bronx, meeting my mom, or whatever. So, you know, he's t- a good, I don't know, at least 25 years older than you. And so he did it. So I yeah. guess if you, you know, I'm not, I'm not joking. Yeah. You could do it if you wanted to do it. Well, my first improv class was uh, six months ago. So I'm only, oh, you at, that, did it. I'm at that stage now. Oh, I didn't know that. I wasn't super great at it, but, uh, well, yeah, yeah. but I mean, that's a learn. Well, that's yeah. why you take class, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just at the first improv class stage. You have this. to get out of yourself. You have to not be playing yourself. I think it's, I, I, I never tried it. I can't. I don't yeah, know of course. Yeah. And then, yeah. and yeah, then you have to have something else to say. Well, and this conflict intolerance gets in the way, right? I am a social, uh, you know, smoother, right? From coming from a turbulent multi-person family as the middle child, trying to smooth down everything is conflict intolerance. That gets in the way of live dramatization with strangers. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of what I wasn't well, good at was, uh, oh, you know, because, being, because being conflict is essential to drama. Or? Yeah. Or, you know, just being, you know, oh, you know, wildly playful, including, you know, transgressive a little bit. Yeah, uh, just isn't quite in my nature with strangers. Right, uh, right, yeah. right. Yeah, but there's other for yeah. improv is just one. Uh, I was inhibited. Is one format. There's other formats right. you can. You know, it's just one uh, modality of it. Yeah, yeah, and conceivably the reason I haven't gotten more publicly involved, I'm a little bit terrified of trolling. Uh, you know, why, kind of why I didn't wade into the climate uh, battles, uh, the climate wars. Um, I I don't have the stomach for trolling for being trolled. I mean, me neither, really. Yeah. And so I wonder, yeah, how bad it is. And but it, the whole point is, if you start to become effective, you will then have to have either have the stomach for that, or you will be driven out. And I don't like it, but uh, I but know. I don't I volunteer you, to spend my life. I think uh, you can ignore it. Uh, I think the people who are good at it know how to ignore it. Or or yeah. some people like the battle. Yeah. Some people. Yeah. But, but yeah, so bless them. Yeah, I'm I'm a sensitive soul, and uh, I am I, I'm busy uh, protecting my uh, creative core from uh, you know the demons I haven't yet outgrown. A <laughs> uh, little too much to wade in there and start. So you think swinging. about doing political things, but that this keeps you from it. Well, yeah, well, right. I'm, fa- yeah, I'm fascinated, and I listen to too many podcasts about politics and everything. But I don't. Right, but when right. it comes down to you know putting my name on some um, you know uh, um, very um, partisan or sided arguments or something, I what about just trying shy to? Away. What about just yeah. trying to articulate these issues outside of scientific publications in a way that's Right, not you know that's serious, but 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 not within uh, well, right. You know, that's the why bounds I, right. of, uh, I'm seeking a transcendent uh, pathway, yeah. a, a synthetic, or you know, I'm t- I want to bring the body and brain back together, and I think through you know through a kind of comedy, right, where you you acknowledge yeah. the fun, you know, wit and laughter and the wit and belly laughs. 
that, you know, that's a lot of what's going on. And so this body politic metaphor I was trying to tell you is a little mm. bit the way I think it's the right way to think of what's at war with what and what's at stake. We live in a complex civilization uh, and we need to understand that so that we can manage it better. And the only complex system that everybody understands is the human body. Mm. And so I believe the human body is the richest uh, mine of metaphors for, uh, for uh, you know, our predicament as a civilization or whatever. And so this body politic. Uh, so what part of the body is a metaphor is right. for what? Yeah. Uh, well, exactly. So we, <laughs> so the gut and the brain, right? So the brain says, oh, we're going to have a problem with the temperature 100 years from now. And, uh, and, the, uh, and the gut says, don't touch my coal supply, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, uh, but, you know, the body is more than that. Right. So I've been, and like I was saying, I think our body politics having an autoimmune disorder. And, uh, and that's the thing. And we're, and these days we're learning all about the microbiome, you know, diversity is essential. Mm. And I think the nexus of this, uh, um, might be the, uh, my character might be the, um, the appendix, the way I understand it, maybe the appendix might have an actual evolutionary role, which is to re as a refugio for the microbiome between, um, eating you know, gut purging uh, disasters when you uh, uh -huh. over overindulge or eat a rotten uh, carcass or something who knows what anyway um so so that it's uh it's really uh it's a conserving institution it's a diversity protecting institution it's on the it's about the gut but it's you know smart and you know sensible and stuff so i'm thinking of a school marm like sensibility that is a little you know and it's so it's connected to the gut and it's also connected to health and so it can let, you know, it needs to wag its finger a little at this runaway <laughs> immune system. You know, now we're all on the same team about health here, <laughs> young man, but uh, you are getting a little out of hand there with the, uh, with the borders and the guns and stuff. And, uh, and, you know, I just feel like the, there's a little finger wagging from the appendix would be a fount of wisdom for the body politic and somehow it'd have a different effect than the finger wagging from the brain well uh yeah because <laughs> it's not on one side or the other of the gut brain battle maybe yeah and yeah. yeah i'm looking for some little sideline position that has a transcendent view that uh, might just you know leaven the debate in some way leaven the right. discourse in some right. way and it's just it's all about finding the right medium. and then it better be funny because it's got you know it's got to be comedy because it better be funny at that point because it's mm. you know whatever I'm just stretching an analogy three layers too deep okay but uh but anyway the good and with a good heart uh, behind it though hopefully so that's my uh that's my daydream of a like an arts uh all right thing about society which is all about scale which is all about how individuals deal with you know live in the large number of other individuals we're immersed in. And the only way we can manage that is through these multi-scale structures. And you know, that's just, that's the story of the world is how, how the, how the individual and the collective are organized. Wow. Yeah. It's a privilege to do what we do. Do you still feel that way? Or did you oh, ever feel that way? Oh, incredible. Yeah. You can't believe uh, what a, well, the, yeah, we live on the tip of the icing on the, Greatest cake in the history of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. To be able to do that. Yeah, anyway, you know, these are great times and uh, the big issues are before us and we have our freedom and we have our health and we have our so far. Yeah. So now, now what are you going to do? <laughs> okay. So you win, you win all your arguments. Now, what are you going to do? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for talking. All right. Thanks for listening okay. and asking. Okay. Yep. Thanks, Brian.
The story of the world is how the individual and the collective are organized. You thought this was a podcast about science you were listening to, huh? Did I tell you? Right? My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editors and post-producers are Stefan Wiener and Dana Hamm, and our audio engineer is Juan Aboites. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.